0: Welcome back to Gray Matters, the podcast of the Seaboyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Jace Lincoln. This episode is another discussion from our recent conference on the future of Chevron deference. First, we will hear from Gray Center Co-Executive Director Adam White, introducing our speakers. Up next is Paul J. Ray, Director of the Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies at the Heritage Foundation and former Administrator of the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. He shares his new paper about the expertise rationale for Chevron Deference and then sits down with Gray Center Co-Executive Director Jen Mascott to discuss the future of Chevron Deference and his experience reviewing regulations behind the scenes in the executive branch.
1: Well, again, on behalf of the C. Boyd and Gray Center and my co-director, Jen Mascott, it's a real pleasure to welcome you all to today's event. We're so grateful to the speakers, the moderators, uh, everybody, including all of you for joining us today. And in thinking about today's event, uh, I thought back to the very beginning of the Gray Center, before Jen was here, before I was here, uh, when Professor uh, Naomi Rao first founded the center in 2015 and 2016, the first conference that she hosted at the center was on uh, Chevron deference. And in fact, a number of today's authors presented papers at that first conference. Uh, Chris Walker, Jonathan Adler, Digi Bamsai presented his original papers on Chevron deference then. Um, a number of the original participants were unavailable. For example, our keynote speaker at that conference was Judge Brett Kavanaugh, uh, who is unavailable, I suppose, for this conference, but may have a few things to say about Chevron deference um, in the months ahead. And also, just thinking back over the last few years, uh, we've been very proud to, to help support legal scholarship on these issues. A number of working papers that have come out of the Gray Center's roundtables. I thought about them during the discussions this morning. Uh, Randy Kozel wrote a paper, I think it was in the Texas Law Review, on chevron and stare decisis and what it means to give stare decisis weight to a methodology rather than a substantive decision. Um, Our most recent paper on the subject, it's on our website today I think, is by Ron Cass on delegation, discretion, deference, and the separation of powers. But I can safely say that even after all the work that Naomi Rao and others have done in the Center on Chevron deference, all the scholarship and debates, um, this collection today of authors, of moderators, of judges, um, all of it brought together by uh, Jen Mascot, I, c- I can safely say, and I know I'm biased and Phil Hamburger would call it Chevron bias, but I can safely say uh, this is the-, the best symposium and conference on the subject, and never could have happened at a better time. And so please join me in thanking all the participants. And now it's my uh, honor and pleasure to introduce our keynote speaker. Uh, Paul Ray directs the Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, He's also a Senior Advisor at Potomac Partners. Uh, But maybe more relevant for present purposes, he served as Administrator of OIRA from 2019 to 2021, and before that he was Counselor to the United States Secretary of labor before that, clerked for Justice Alito and practiced at Sidley, Austin. Uh, he too has a new paper that's up on the Gray Center's homepage today on the issue at hand. It's titled, and I'm pretty sure this is not a typo, Lover Mystic Bureaucrat. The communication of expertise and the deference doctrines. Paul, did I get that basically right? Yeah. Okay, good. Um, anyway, he'll come up on the stage in a moment to offer remarks and then be joined in a you keynote, a fireside conversation with our co-director Jen Mascott. And let me introduce Professor Mascott as well. She's of course the co-director of the C. Boyd and Gray Center, an assistant professor of law at the Scalia Law School. Uh, she served at high levels in the Justice Department. Uh, since coming to the Gray Center, coming back to Scalia Law, she's found a couple of our most impactful programs. The article one venture focused on re-educating Congress on the separation of powers, and the separation of powers clinic aimed at educating judges on the separation of powers. Uh, before that, she clerked uh, for Justice Thomas and Judge Brett Kavanaugh. I meant to add one more thing about uh, Paul Ray, by the way. He uh, We're lucky to have him participate in so many of our programs. Just two weeks ago, he spoke at a conference on financial regulation, and I can safely say if we invite him to any more events, we're going to have to rename the Gray Center the Ray Center. So please join me in welcoming
2: Paul Ray. Adam, thank you for that kind introduction. Uh, Really a joy to be uh, here with you guys among such a distinguished company. I'm going to start today by sketching some lessons for the deference debates from the regulatory process as viewed from the inside, and my main goal is really just to convince you that the regulatory process has important insights to offer uh, to the deference debates. Now, it's a point that's been overlooked sometimes, especially by the courts. Uh, some of you may know uh, Justice now Justice Kagan and Professor Barron's article back in 2001 on Mead, in which they said that the courts' approach to deference treats agencies as unitary actors, each an undifferentiated black box from which decisions issue impersonally. Only the courts, they said, among those concerned with administration routinely neglect internal agency structure. And they argued that this omission distorted uh, the court's deference jurisprudence. So today, I want to build on and and really broaden Kagan and Barron's insight in in their article from 2001. The court's deference jurisprudence views the agencies as monads, each one a simple and solid whole unto itself. But in fact, agencies are not at all monads. Rather, they are made of many parts, and they are themselves parts of the broader executive machine. The court's view of the agencies as monads means that in the deference cases, it has not been asking all the right questions about both agency expertise, and political accountability, the two primary bases for the presumption that Congress intends agencies to resolve ambiguity in statutes and regulations they administer. My goal here is not to argue for any particular position on deference, but really just to sketch some important questions that should but at present do not feature in the court's considerations in light of the realities of the executive regulatory process. So let's take up uh, the expertise rationale first. That rationale goes something like this Courts should defer to agencies when agencies have and use expert knowledge that enables a better interpretation of an ambiguous provision. In Chevron, the court described the expertise that warrants deference as, quote, more than ordinary knowledge respecting the matters subjected to agency regulations. The point is one of institutional competence. Agencies with expertise are better situated to interpret ambiguous text than inexpert courts. As the court put it in Kaiser, when the agency has no comparative expertise in resolving a regulatory ambiguity, Congress would presumably not grant it that authority. Now, Deference may be appropriate only when the interpreting agency cannot reasonably transfer its expertise to the reviewing courts. After all, if the agency could transfer its expertise by educating the court, then the court wouldn't have any reason to defer. It would simply evaluate the agency's interpretation with the benefit of the expertise the agency helps it to acquire. Doing so would avoid deference's indisputable costs, in particular, the cost of making the government, at least in some measure, the judge in its own cause. Now, perhaps that's a cost we're willing to bear for the sake of the goods expert interpretation offers. But we shouldn't bear it if we don't have to. And we don't have to bear it if agencies can impart their expertise to courts. So courts should defer only when agencies cannot reasonably transfer their expertise to the reviewing courts. Curiously, the court's cases do not focus on this condition. Rather, they assume incommunicability. Agencies know something that judges don't, and between the two, a great gulf is fixed. We see this assumption, for instance, in the plurality opinion in Kaiser. The plurality uses an example in which they say that um, TSA is in a better position Uh, than a court to know why uh, TSA bans liquids and gels and what makes them dangerous, which is undoubtedly true. Um, But TSA could surely educate a reviewing court in those matters. The plurality simply assumes that because the special knowledge about liquids and gels and their dangers originates in TSA, that it has to stay there. So let's reflect for a moment on why courts might assume that agencies cannot share their expertise. It can't really be because agency expertise is incommunicable in principle, as is, say, knowledge of what it's like to see the color red. Try explaining to someone what it means to see the color red. If they haven't seen the color, they, they just can't know what you mean. On the contrary, uh, Max Weber wrote, quote, in principle, a system of rationally debatable reasons stands behind every act of bureaucratic administration. So perhaps it is instead because the cost of agencies to express and judges to understand agency expertise is just too high, higher than the cost of deference. And this has a kind of surface plausibility to it. After all, often in daily life we rely on others, say doctors, engineers, and lawyers, whose judgments are based on special knowledge that is shareable in principle, but that neither we nor they wish to spend the time and effort and other expense to acquire. Here I think is where the monadic error that I referred to earlier creeps in. For an expert agency is very little like a doctor, engineer, lawyer, or any other expert person. A person with specialized knowledge can form a plan of action or recommendation without sharing his special knowledge with anyone. That's because the expertise resides in the same self as the will that makes a decision or renders a recommendation. But of course, agencies are not like that. Their expertise is distributed across the minds of their staff, and the decisions that the agency makes are also made in the minds of the staff. But unlike in a person, those minds, the holders of the expertise, the makers of the decisions, may not be the same. EPA has deep knowledge about the Clean Air Act, and it also makes decisions about implementing the Clean Air Act, but the minds that have the expertise may well be different than the minds that make the decisions. Indeed, that is very, very often the case. The main decision makers within EPA, the administrator for instance, the various assistant administrators and other leadership, often of course have backgrounds in uh, environmental policy and law, but very rarely do they have deep expertise in the subject matter of a given regulation. That expertise usually belongs to staff, to subject matter experts or SMEs in executive parlance who specialize in particular programs. For the SME's expertise to influence regulations, it must make the journey from the SME's minds to the decision-makers within EPA. But it can't really stop there, either. Their expertise has to also make the journey to the rest of the agency team working on the regulation and to all the other executive officials, at OIRA and DOJ, uh, at EPA sister agencies and the West Wing, whose agreement or at least non-opposition is needed for the regulation to go forward. Many of these officials will have significant environmental experience and education, but again, few will have the kind of expertise that the specialist SMEs do. What all this means is that the subject matter experts have to explain their expertise to others, including many non-specialists within the executive branch. As Professors Anya Bernstein and Cristina Rodriguez read earlier this year, the regulatory process is permeated with norms of justification, explanation, and persuasion. And agency experts must comply with these norms if they are to shape the content of regulations. To be sure, sometimes these norms must give way to executive exigencies. As you might imagine, busy officials cannot afford to plumb every interpretation in every rulemaking down to its roots. But for an important interpretation, a critical mass of officials have strong incentives to understand why they should support and how they can defend it. And this means they have strong reasons to demand, and the subject matter experts have strong reasons to provide, explanations of the subject matter expert's expertise on which the interpretation rests. Agencies then are not monadic individuals who make interpretive decisions on the basis of expertise lodged deep in their own selves. They are instead groups of people who deliberate and who must therefore share their expertise with each other. The lesson for Chevron deference, and for our deference too, while we're at it, is this. Even if it is plausible that the cost for an individual expert to share his expertise with a reviewing court would be unduly high, that fact tells us very little about whether it would be unduly costly for an expert agency to do so. For the expertise that shapes important regulations is already being shared in the executive process. That agency experts already successfully communicate their expertise to non-experts within the executive branch is a reason to believe the additional cost for them to communicate it to non-expert judges would be modest. And that executive non-experts already acquire the expertise they need to evaluate arguments about interpretations within the executive branch is a reason to suspect that non-expert judges could often do the same. At the very least, It should be clear that the costs of disclosing the expertise that's the subject of deliberations within the agency are different than the costs of disclosing expertise hidden within a single mind. Perhaps those costs are still higher than the costs of deference. My point, though, is just that the courts have not asked that question. But it's a question they need to ask and to answer if Chevron's expertise rationale is to be complete and persuasive. Now let's turn to Chevron's accountability rationale. The Chevron court placed great weight on the fact that the agencies are supervised by the president, who is, in the court's words, directly accountable to the people. Federal judges, the court explained, have a duty to respect the legitimate policy choices of those who are responsible to the people. So courts must not second guess the executive branch's interpretation, so long as it doesn't contravene the unambiguous statutory text. Even if it it is not the interpretation that, quote, the court would have reached if the question initially had arisen in a judicial proceeding. Now, it's not immediately obvious why Chevron deference promotes accountability. After all, Congress too has a democratic mandate and a superior one. And that's for two reasons, at least. First, the Constitution the people made vests legislative authority in Congress rather than the executive. And second, Congress, but not the executive, labors under a set of protections designed to prevent factionalism. Those protections increase Congress's accountability to popular reason, even as, indeed because, they decrease accountability to popular passion and private interest. But the executive lacks the benefit of these protections from faction. The upshot is that the best way to promote accountability is to give effect to Congress's policy decisions. I don't take the Chevron Court to disagree. Rather, I think its reasoning goes something like this Congress may have the strongest democratic pedigree, but the president's is both real and greater than the courts. So, courts should not stand athwart the presidential will unless they are relatively certain that by doing so, they are promoting the achievement of Congress's will, Congress's objectives. And this means courts should be confident that Congress has indeed spoken to a question before interfering with an interpretation adopted under the president's auspices. Implicit in this line of reasoning is the assumption that the agencies acting under the president's supervision are not significantly more likely than courts to depart from congressional intent. After all, if they are, then deference to the president's democratic mandate comes only at the expense of Congress's superior one. What basis do we have to believe that agencies under presidential supervision are not significantly more likely than courts to depart from congressional intent in the zone of freedom that Chevron opens up to them? That's the question we have to ask. Of course, courts no less than executive officials can make mistakes. And courts no less than executive officials can willfully pursue their own priorities. Part of Chevron's great attraction for Justice Scalia, it seems to me, was its recognition that judges do not differ from executive officials in either of these respects. But executive officials do differ in other important ways from judges. Perhaps the most important is that while judges are immersed in particularity, they are called upon to interpret this particular provision in this statute governing this program. Agencies are parts of a greater whole headed by the president. And presidents, because they sit atop a machine composed of dozens of agencies administering thousands of statutes, confront possibilities and pressures different than those that judges face. Agencies' incentives and chances to depart from congressional intent therefore differ from the incentives and chances of judges to do so. We can begin to see the difference this distinction makes by looking back to Chevron itself. There the court understood that Congress meant to accommodate certain interests but did not clearly balance them with respect to the bubble concept. Rather than balance those interests itself, the court chose to let EPA do so since it is accountable to the people through the president. But of course, to the extent the president influences a rulemaking, he does not simply step into the shoes of the EPA administrator with a focus narrowly restricted to the Clean Air Act or even to environmental issues more broadly. He is tasked with the pursuit of many, many interests that are irrelevant to those Congress sought to accommodate in the program at issue in Chevron. And we may well wonder whether the President might use the program at issue there to pursue these other interests. A number of the major questions cases in recent years seem to arise from agency action under a statute repurposed by the President to pursue interests far from those Congress meant to accommodate in those statutes. Consider, for instance, West Virginia versus EPA. There, the Clean Power Plan pursued a presidential goal of national energy resource management that was far beyond Congress's horizon when it enacted the Clean Air Act amendments. I think we find the same thing repeating in the student loan cases, the eviction moratorium case, and others. The concern I've raised becomes even more plausible, I think, if we reflect for a moment on the situation in which today's presidents find themselves. Neither the president nor his constituents can have any clear or firm idea of the limits on agency and thus presidential power. This is because those limits are spelled out in hundreds of statutes enacted over the decades and whose outer reaches are discovered on an as-needed basis. More and more, presidents seem to their followers and to themselves to be all-purpose problem solvers within the scope of whose ample powers all the day's most pressing crises fall. For presidents, the means by which one of these crises is solved is a matter of relative indifference. The important thing is to solve it. Presidents and their teams are therefore tempted to formulate policy first and then seek out any authority that might be remotely useful to accomplish their goals without regard to Congress's objectives in enacting the authority in the first place. They thus have strong incentives to strain interpretations to the breaking point, and these are incentives that judges seem to lack. The president differs from judges in another relevant way. A judge's ability to alter policy through a judgment about a regulation is restricted by the reach of the regulatory program itself. But presidents, because they coordinate regulatory, uh, policy across many agencies, are not so limited. They can set a general objective to be pursued by agencies across the federal government. Uh, the, the recent climate EOs are examples. By doing so, presidents can shape domestic policy in a much more far-reaching way than can a single judicial decision on a single regulation. And this means they can far more comprehensively displace congressional decisions. It also means that presidents can assume the prime policy-setting initiative, pursuing the kinds of across-the-board solutions that Congress can enact, but that courts can almost never effectuate. Further, the public can see that the president possesses the initiative. And the president thus may come to displace Congress in the minds of many as the main origin and arbiter of domestic policy the state of affairs would undermine Congress's democratic mandate in a wholly different way than any judge can. These concerns all flow from the status of agencies as parts of a regulatory machine helmed by the president. To be sure, nothing I've said establishes that these concerns are so powerful as to justify overturning Chevron. Perhaps the accountability benefits that Chevron generates more than make up for the risk of accountability that it creates. I'm skeptical, but nothing that I've said excludes that possibility. My point is just that once we see that the president does not make decisions as if he were a monadic agency pursuing a limited mission, but rather in light of the many agencies he directs and the manifold priorities he pursues, we must recognize that presidents and the agencies they direct are situated differently from courts with respect to giving effect to congressional intent. And if that's so, then it's far from clear that Chevron promotes accountability. It may, in fact, create space in which presidents can, and have incentives to, thwart Congress's own democratic mandate. And it therefore becomes incumbent on courts to ask whether deference, in fact, promotes or hinders accountability. But courts have not asked that question so far. So Kagan and Barron were right. The way the federal regulatory process actually works matters for the deference debates. The intra-executive habit of demanding and giving explanations raises questions about the expertise rationale. After all, if experts must explain their expertise to executive non-experts, how hard would it be to explain it also to judicial non-experts? And the realities of political direction by presidents with their universal perspective and authority should make us question the assumption that courts and the executive branch are equally likely to pursue congressional purposes. I expect the regulatory process offers many other lessons for the deference debates, but perhaps these are enough to get us started. Thank you.
3: Before we talk about your expertise in looking uh, on the ground, some folks might be thinking what are the various justices' views and how realistic is it actually that they might revisit Chevron? I think the first panel in particular uh, harkened back to Kaiser and in that case everybody um, know, the chattering class in the scholarly world was talking about whether the court would overrule our deference. And you know, Justice Kagan managed to keep it intact. So just to think through some of those issues, um, you know, my former boss, Justice Thomas, for a number of years has been talking about the Chevron deference perhaps needing to go by the wayside um, as early as 2015, which is somewhat, I mean, that's notable in and of itself because just a few years before that, he had drafted uh, the Brand X decision, which was referenced here in passing earlier today. But that decision essentially holds that Chevron deference is so paramount that if an agency had reached an earlier interpretation, a court couldn't then undo it. So really cementing it and then looking at the constitutional questions later and reconsidering it. Justice Gorsuch when he came on the bench has um, really clearly taken up the call to re-examine Chevron deference and uh, John Duffy mentioned earlier that that's intriguing because his mom issued the order that was at review in that case. Although I don't know if we got too far as to make the point that actually overruling Chevron as some folks are talking about today wouldn't actually involve necessarily undoing the decision in that case and the order is issued by my Justice Gorsuch's uh, mother, but just the methodology at issue in the case. And then there was the question of Justice Kavanaugh and what do his earlier writings suggest. Um, And I, you know, in looking back at his uh, Kaiser concurrence, which was referenced earlier, he has an intriguing line at the end that says he, like the Chief Justice, really wants to make clear or doesn't interpret the Kaiser decision As in in its treatment of our as um, being precedent for the future treatment of Chevron. And so depending on one's perspective, that might either be ominous or intriguing. Um, Maybe he's saying uh, well, there's still room to overrule that even if we wouldn't overrule our deference. And then actually in his confirmation process listed our deference as one of the key uh, decisions he thinks the court should or would revisit. Um, And so, you know, just an interesting question whether with this doctrine that talks about courts deferring to agency interpretations of law, what the justices will do. I don't recall Justice Alito having given quite as many definitive signals on the doctrine over his service as some of the other justices. And I'm curious as to whether you have any just thoughts about with his general jurisprudential approach, um, how likely he would be. Want to uh, take a close look at the roots of the doctrine itself in this case?
2: Yeah, know it's a great question. Um, so, uh, of, of course, disclaiming any any insider knowledge uh, on on the question, um, Jen, I think you're right. Um, you know, I think Justice Alito has um, has has not taken. Uh, a, as, as firm and frequent positions as some of the other justices, especially I think of Justice Gorsuch, uh, in, in recent years on on some of these administrative law questions, I, I think the way he'll he'll think about the question is you know um, is is really in terms of, of separation of powers, uh, and um, I, I think I think you see uh, the attraction to the Chevron uh, doctrine has waned over the years uh, as it's become apparent that the um, the, the possibility of, uh, well, as presidential control over the agencies has grown, I think you've seen a, a number of justices realize the, the real separation of powers concerns raised by the agencies and that those concerns may predominate over the possibilities of, of judicial aggrandizement that uh, the Chevron is meant to cut back on. So I think, um, you, know, I think you see in Justice Salito's opinions uh, a recognition of that, of that same danger.
3: Okay, and then and then hopping to your role for a couple of years up ahead of OIRA, I'm wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about on, on the ground, and for those who don't know, I assume most of our audience today does know, the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs has to review regulations coming up for many of the agencies not all there are a number of independent agencies whose regulations don't cross your desk but essentially you are an office within the White House that is charged with reviewing the regulations for efficiencies lawfulness to an extent and then presumably also making sure that they are consistent with whatever the overall mission is of the elected administration in a sense On the ground as a practical matter, was the Chevron deference doctrine a reality for you and your team in reviewing regulations? Did people talk about it, think about it? Did it impact whether you were likely to give a check
2: to a reg? Yeah, no, um, very good question. Well, first of all, I'll say I I, I do expect that. This room has the highest percentage of people who've heard about OIRA of of any room in <laughs> in the world right now. Uh, actually, I'm from Chattanooga, Tennessee. You should try asking who knows about OIRA in Chattanooga, Tennessee. The the results are, are not overwhelming. So, I absolutely uh, encountered ways that Chevron shaped the um, the regulatory process. I I guess I'll I'll start by going back not to my OIRA experience, but to my DOL experience. Uh, I was was at the Department of Labor, as as Adam mentioned, as Counselor to the Secretary for about a year before joining OIRA. And I I remember, I was working on a a particular regulation. I advocated for taking a a particular position because it was the best reading of the statute. And uh, a career official said that that was not a good enough reason to adopt that interpretation in the regulation because of Chevron. We had to, have, uh, seeking to be the, the most faithful agent of Congress was not, was not a good enough reason. We had to have additional reasons, because Chevron allowed us to to not, uh, to, to not seek to be the most faithful agent of Congress. Uh, I, I was rather flabbergasted by that. It, it seems like if anything is a good reason to adopt an interpretation, it's because we think that it's what Congress would have wanted, even if it's not what Congress demands of, of the agency. Um, so I, I, I do think that um, the, the baseline uh, against which, or the, the, the concerns that are relevant for agencies in adopting interpretations, are profoundly profoundly shaped uh, by by Chevron. Uh, that's true in the the initial drafting process, and also in the interagency review process, right? So, uh, the OIR process um, uh, provides an opportunity for OIR itself to shape regulations to be consistent with the president's priorities and with norms of, of good regulatory practice and cost-benefit analysis, but it also provides an opportunity for other agencies to, to weigh in on, on the regulation under review. Uh, so certainly, you know, um, one great benefit of that, of, of, uh, of that interagency process is uh, channeling legal views from the Department of Justice and White House counsel and potentially other agency general counsel's offices in, into uh, into the the regulation under review, um, and I absolutely found that you know all of the the legal input provided in the interagency process was shaped by an understanding of Chevron in the background. So, uh, so the question uh, really was: Is this a thing that the that the agency can do, rather than is this is this what Congress would have most wanted the agency to do?
3: And so as a practical matter, I guess I'm curious into drilling down a little bit more on how that played itself out. So without, Uh, you know, interrupting any confidentiality interests, maybe in generalities, going back to your Department of Labor example, what did you perceive to be motivating the desire to stick with Chevron deference? Was there going to be a significant um, constraint on what the Labor Department could have done if it had followed your... Idea of looking closely at what the the Congress said versus what the original draft or the proposal had been.
2: Yeah, so so the outcome of the regulation um, was going to be the same in this particular example instance that I'm thinking of. What was interesting to me was um, well, two things. One, it it was it was quite clear that. that the you know that the agency staff were glad to have the benefit of Chevron deference. They thought it created more liberty of action. Um, what was most interesting to me, though, was that uh, that the very idea of of trying to to seek out the best reading of the statute had been taken off the table as uh, as something that was that was relevant for agencies to do. Um, agencies were not, as, as far as you know, as the the staff in this rulemaking were concerned, um, the agency was not. Not really in the business of seeking to discern and 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 pass along uh, or, or or act upon congressional intent. Um, rather, uh, Congress had, uh, you know, in light of Chevron, had carved out a certain set of bounds within which the agency was free to act, and within those bounds, um, th- there wasn't really a um, congressional intent. Intent, if it, if it existed, wasn't really wasn't really relevant.
3: So one of the things we've been talking about a lot today is, you know, what happens if the court does revisit the way in which Chevron's been operating and its lawfulness or constitutionality as a doctrine. Do you think, given, though, the fact that currently it's been on the books, and so therefore it would have been a relevant doctrine to executive branch lawyers. Um, you know, when, So I, I worked at the Department of Justice the same time that um, Paul was at OIRA, and so we would probably kick over a fair amount of uh, regulations to you. And one question that always comes up, at least for me as a scholar coming into government service, is how different, if at all, is my role supposed to be in figuring out how to look at you know the legality of a, an action. If you're an executive branch lawyer under the president, with a certain set of you know doctrines that remain in place, versus the scholarly approach. And I'm curious as to whether you have thoughts on whether if the court leaves Chevron in place, does that impact the executive branch lawyers' just duty or need to look at tools in the toolkit if they're serving a president who? Says, let's use every tool in the toolkit, including Chevron deference.
2: Right. Um, yes. Yeah, so certainly, you know, um, the main role of a lawyer in the executive branch seems to be to provide disinterested advice to his or her client. Uh, so if if the if the client uh, in this case says, I you know Chevron's on the books, and I. Uh, I, I understand maybe there are some policy concerns with its invocation, but it's on the book and it's on the books, and so I, I direct that you find a way for me to pursue X policy in light of Chevron's existence. I think you know the executive branch lawyers would be obligated to, to do that.
3: Uh, for the conference today, which really appreciate you submitting that. In addition to doing the, the keynote address here, talks a lot about the re- uh, rationale of expertise as being a practical justification for Chevron. And so it might be that as the court's thinking through Chevron deference, some of the justices themselves will wonder if getting rid of the scheme harms the agency's expert ability to be able to influence how courts see statutes. And you suggest that you know, it's no more challenging for an agency expert to communicate that information to a court than it is to communicate it to their higher-ups. And so I'll, first I just wondered, as a practical matter, how did you see the folks on the ground forming the statute, or forming the regulation, communicating up? Their expertise and their understanding, and how did that help you understand the regulation better?
2: I was really struck, especially in my time at OIRA, but also at DOL, at uh, at the at the amount of of explaining of expertise that that goes on. Uh, a few scholars have noted this, but at least in my experience, that it's it's a it's a simply pervasive flow of of expertise from the subject matter experts to to those who are entrusted with making the ultimate decisions. Um, so, I'll speak from my own experience. You know, OIRA, uh, when I was there, had about 50 career staff. Um, they were immensely knowledgeable people in a vast domain of areas that I had never studied in my life, uh, and, uh, but I had to begin to understand things, to sign off on regulations, or provide feedback to the agencies, or participate in higher level meetings about the regulations, and so um, there wasn't really anything for it but to try to learn. What what these uh, experts with decades and decades of experience knew not all of it that would be that would have been impossible and would have been silly to try um, but but the key thing is uh, no expert needs to use all of his or her expertise in in any um, regulatory interpretation right I mean think about I use this example in my paper think about a doctor uh, a doctor needs a lot of a lot of knowledge um, but they need a lot of knowledge because they don't know what cases are going to be presented to them in any given on any given uh, patient, right? Um, a doctor deploys only a tiny, tiny bit of his or his or her expertise in treating a particular patient, right? And so, if the patient wants to become well, you know, well informed, uh, informed enough to make a, a decision about treatment, um, it's not a it's not a um, it's not an impossible thing to ask the doctor to provide some some serious education to the patient, right? And so um, I found that, uh, you know, in, in the executive branch, uh, senior officials could uh, could ask the career experts to provide n- not all of their expertise by any means, but enough of their expertise that the executive official could, could come to understand what he was asked to decide on. Um, I, I found that a number of my Colleagues who are more generalists uh, were, were engaged in the same in the same kinds of back and forth, uh, trying to to understand the expertise of the of the subject matter experts. So that's what gives me gives me some measure of confidence that that courts could do the same. Courts, you know, judges and executive officials are not precisely the same, but some of the same dynamics do obtain.
3: So I appreciate your uh, reference to similarities. If we were to think about the differences, do you have thoughts, though? It strikes me that two things off the bat, number one, um, you know, as, as many of us in the room know who have worked on regulations, sometimes it takes years and years to develop them. So the judicial review process often happens on a shorter time horizon. So does that interrupt the ability to be able to get the expertise, that shorter time horizon? And then also, is it relevant that within the executive branch, at least to the extent that one believes in some version of even a soft unitary executive approach. In theory, it's all the same entity. So your ability to be able to just sort of command or ask for information or share the same interests might enable you to be able to easily get the agency expertise. And if we see the judiciary as a separate branch that's supposed to be taking a new look from the outside, Perhaps with even more skepticism. Does that inherently mean their process is going to be more challenging, and they can't as readily um, just incorporate all the agency expertise the way you, as a supervisor, would?
2: So it's certainly the case that the time horizons between, or uh, uh, you know, in in the in the rulemaking process, often differ radically from traditional review. I'm thinking in particular of, of one rulemaking that started in the 1990s and moved to con- tried to move to conclusion in 2019. Uh, we actually ended up sending that regulation back to the agency on the instruction that um, no rulemaking from the last millennium could uh, could proceed without going out for another notice and, round of notice and comment. Uh, but it's certainly the case that rulemaking could take a very long time. To your, to your point, Jen, uh, of course, so can judicial review. Uh, no doubt, no doubt about that. Um, but But I don't think the time horizon materially impacts our question. Um, You know, um, usually an interpretation uh, that an agency adopts, in my my experience, is not hashed out over (coughs) over decades and decades of discussion. It's usually the product of a a few meetings. Those few meetings could happen at different times over the years with different officials. But you know, it's it's not. It would be. Unusual in the extreme for a high-level official to spend years and years brooding uh, over uh, over a particular interpretation and, and have you know all, all that time to get up to speed on on a subject matter experts expertise. So I don't I don't think judges differ from executive officials in in that respect. As, as to your second point, um, you know one uh, one benefit of OIRA review is that OIRA provides a second set of eyes within the executive branch. Right, um, that's a frequent source of criticism of OIRA that OIRA is not expert enough, uh, um, and the response that I always give to that is it's actually helpful to have a re- uh, you know um, compared to the agency a relatively more more generalist review within the executive branch, um, and I think you find a, a number of the of the reviewers who participate in interagency review. Um, Uh, certainly are, you know, know, adhere to the president's priorities, but also have incentives to, to poke holes in the agency's analysis uh, and and so therefore have incentives to demand explanations, uh, and and that in turn gives the subject matter experts incentives to provide explanations. And so in, in that way, I think it's not it's not dissimilar to the judicial process, right? Where judges uh, to perform their office have have reason to demand explanation, and the subject matter experts to uh, you know get the regulation across the finish line have incentives to provide them.
3: Well, that behind-the-scenes view is very helpful, and we're really grateful to you for uh, sharing that with us. Because you know, you obviously had to look at a number of varied regulations, often under really short time horizons, and with a, a, lot, a lot of um, just. Political pressure inside of an elected uh, branch of government. One final question before we get to our break and then our, our delightful afternoon panels. Do you, I mean, I think even the folks here today who have suggested that under the APA, uh, perhaps there would be purely de novo review of legal questions. Um, have suggested that and and acknowledged that uh, statutory terms are so broad often giving agencies power that um, Even if you thought that there should be purely or um, no deference given to an agency on the law That there would still be a fair amount of policy deference under the arbitrary and capricious standard of the APA So if there's a broad term then the legal answer is that the agency has a range of options. And do you think that expertise is a way in which an agency, then that value can still have a meaningful impact, even if the court, uh, as a practical matter said, totally de novo review, I'm sure, questions of law moving forward.
2: Yes, absolutely. I, I don't think we would actually lose um, very many, uh, perhaps we would lose none of the benefits of expertise, if Chevron were overruled, um, you know, the reason that you just gave, Jen, is, is one of those reasons. You know, other reasons uh, are you know in, include what I just talked about about um, be, you know agencies being able to explain their expertise, right? Um, I, yeah, I, I don't think that we would stand to to lose the um, the benefits of expertise should Chevron be overruled.
3: All right. Well, thank you for. Uh, sharing. Just feel free to pull Paul aside and ask him (laughs) questions afterwards. And then please uh, hurry back to your seats for our third panel to start at 1.20 with a lot more experts to come this afternoon.
0: This has been an episode of Gray Matters. If you enjoyed this discussion, check out all of our episodes on our website at administrativestate.gmu.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at AdLawCenter.